Now listening to Lost Cast, the Lost Decade Games podcast. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 136. I'm Matt Hackett. I'm Jeff Blair. This week, we're going to talk a little bit about our survey, which we put out last week. And wow, what a great response. Nice. Thank you so much for, for taking that. And uh, we're going to continue to keep it open for about another month. Good stuff in there. I want to read one of these quotes. I'll try to find one. There's, there's so many really great comments. That's one of the things that, uh, you know, because the survey has a point, you know, it's we want to get information, right? But then there's also always these kind of freeform comment sections. And uh, some of them, they just, they warm your heart, you know? They tug on <laughs> your heartstreams. Matt is fueled by positive comments. I am. You know how it is. You wake up some mornings and thumbs down, your game sucks. <laughs> I'm sorry about it. Not only sorry, but like, you know, I want you to burn in Hades or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but this has been uh, some really great stuff. Um, I'll try to find one of those. There's a lot of stuff to weed through, but uh, I'll try to look for one of those. We are also going to talk about, uh, I'm going to pimp a little bit uh, one of my friend's blogs because uh, it's really interesting. He is a collector of video games. He has over 7,000 physical games. That's a lot of games. Yeah. And I don't even know if he's on Steam or whatnot. Like, I'm sure he's got some digital games as well. You know, like maybe stuff he's downloaded to his Xbox or whatnot. But over 7,000 physical copies of, uh, of games. Over 700 Nintendo games. And then also, you know, just a ton of all kinds of other games. And uh, he's been doing that for like 30 years, collecting games and uh, being really hardcore about it. And he writes sometimes. And uh, he wrote an article that I think is particularly interesting because it's... Uh, Tips and Tactics for Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link. And yeah. uh, I always thought that game was really hard. I, I like it. I know that not everybody does. It's kind of polarizing, you know? Like, some people really just wanted another Zelda game, and they later got it with A Link to the Past. But, you know, Zelda 2 was, like, this side-scrolling platformer, and, like, that's the only, to my knowledge, Zelda game that's ever been like that. And a lot of people were like, I don't understand this weird black sheep of the Zelda franchise, you know? I hate it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I kind of <laughs> figured. Uh, I like it. But I recognize that it's very different, and I think it says a lot. Like I'm, I'm bad at it, you know. Like I'm, I'm pretty good at some side-scrolling platformers, but uh, not that one. I'm terrible, and so I find his tips and tricks, um, tips and tactics, really interesting and very uh, helpful. What's that? They're very helpful. Yeah, and I kind of want to like apply them. I want to go back and play some Zelda Two. It's been a while, you know. And mm. last time I played it, I remember being like, "Man, I, I can't enjoy that game. I want to go play it again." It just, it ripped me a new one, man. Like, not only could I not find anything, like, it's stuff's hidden, I didn't know where to go and all that, but the enemies are hard. It's a hard game. I think uh, side-scrolling platforms are just inherently harder in general. They are. It's because of gravity, right? Stupid gravity. <laughs> <laughs> gravity makes everything hard. I'm going to talk so, a little bit about that as well. Um, some of the things that humans live in, like gravity and space-time, and uh, some of our other, like, what are the things that really appeal to humans, right? I'm going to talk about that. Um, I'm going to ask you about your Unity stream. I've got a new art tip. You have a u new Unity tip? Yep. All right. Locked and loaded, ready to go? Uh, probably. <laughs> probably. But we'll Do see you, when we get there. Yeah. Do you have one or have you like created a bunch? You have like some queued up? Uh, no. Nice. Well done, Jeff. Here's my <laughs> slow clap. <laughs> no, it's cool. As long as you've only got the one. Uh, you got to have one per episode forever. I kind of uh, tend to wing things. <laughs> yeah, you shoot from the hip. I do. I like it. I'll be like uh, like yesterday when you did your live stream, which I'll also ask you about. Uh, you, <laughs> I was like, like, what are you covering today? And you're like, oh, <laughs> you never really know. What's, what's funniest to me is when you're like, okay, live stream. Here we go, everybody. Thanks for being here. Um, what are we doing today? I don't know. Let's pull. 
hey a new graphic let's work on that graphic (laughs) that's kind of how it happened yesterday actually i pulled right before and i saw that explosion graphic so i was like all right well here we go oh yeah the explosion graphic i could talk about the explosion graphic it's another topic it's right here grumble grumble maybe i'll talk about that when i talk about the uh my art tip maybe we're tired of your art tips what i don't think so that's been a really great response to him there really has actually you seen it on twitter Mm -hmm. a little bit on the forum Good yes, stuff. yes. You're amazing. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Move it along. That's right. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Chop, chop. chop. <laughs> um, okay, so I think I already mentioned the Zelda 2 thing. So I'll talk a little bit about this, um, the kind of thing I was alluding to earlier. So uh, we're really interested in games that are inherently interesting to people, right? And you kind of have to examine people. What are people? Where do people live? How do people live, right? And uh, we are all stuck in this thing that we barely understand called space-time right? We can move around in space. I'm like flopping my hands around right now like a Muppet. You know, there's time, right? Like this this podcast has already been going on for five or ten minutes. Space and time, those are two things humans can't get out of, you know? And I think it's worth mentioning that both space and time are human-constructed measurements of who the hell knows what. <laughs> I saw this quote recently. It was, um, there is no truths, only conveniences. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. I don't even know what that I means. Mean, if you, but if you think about like everything, <laughs> you know, math, physics, all that stuff that we use to define the world around us, it's all just ways for us to relate to whatever, you know. Yeah, math is just like a helpful tool. It's not like this is, you know, this is written from above. This is the way it is, right? It's just like our version of explaining the universe to ourselves, which right. is a really difficult thing to do. It's a uh, weird when you think about like your inputs too, like. Uh, what you're seeing is really just light particles bouncing around yeah. off whatever in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I've been studying art a lot, as I've been talking about, and uh, that kind of stuff, it, uh, it really gets in your head. And sometimes you're like, do I even exist? You like, just touch a <laughs> table, and you're like, is this table here? Am I Am I in the Matrix? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Maybe. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, so gravity is another big one, right? Where, like, humans can't, get away from gravity and so gravity is a really fun thing to play with you know games that are like you can bounce stuff or you can jump really high or you can like launch things like whoa that thing went flying all that kind of stuff um eating is also a very fundamental human thing so like consuming you know adding right. to uh those are things that humans really enjoy right like they they relate to it they get it um and here's another thing there's like our place in the world, right? Like, humans are at the top of the food chain. There's not really much competition. Like, once in a while, a human will be, like, one rung <laughs> on the ladder lower on the food chain. You know, you get attacked by a shark or a tiger or a bear <laughs> or something. And that sucks. But for the most part, we're at the top of the food chain. And we kind of, like, we control... We don't control nature, but, we like, we have a lot of control over the animals, right? Um, but there's something to think about. Like, go go way, way, way back and just picture that we are all apes, Right? What is it that gave us that first advantage, right? And uh, so I saw these couple of actually really interesting articles. Uh, I think it came from this Reddit uh, post that was really interesting, which was like, what are humans really bad at, right? (laughs) Really good stuff in there. Um, But there was also some, like, to temper that, there was some stuff like, what are humans really good at? And one of them is throwing. And that really stuck with me because when you look at, especially our games, the games that we like to play and the games that we've made, like, you know, especially like Onslaught and then uh, obviously a Wizard's Lizard, they're games about throwing, right? 
It's like the avatar, the player character, you are this squishy thing. You really don't want to get into the fray, right? Like humans are like that too. Like I don't want to wrestle a bear. A bear would destroy me, right? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> like almost any animal on the planet, like even a dog, a dog of, of sufficient size, it's got, I mean, claws, sure, but it's, it's, got, got, a, it's got this mouth, it's got this bear trap attached to its head, it's, you know? It's got a lot of advantages over you. Yes. <laughs> like humans are squishy. We are a uh, like a long range class, right? <laughs> We're like glass cannons. Glass cannons. Yeah. And that's the yeah. thing. Like other animals throw stuff, although it is a unusual thing. Um, there's kind of like these outliers that are like, whoa, a weird animal throws stuff like a, you know, a spider that flips and launches sand or something like that. Uh, but then there's like monkeys, monkeys like legit throw They're They're known for throwing their poop at each other, but I'm sure they throw other things as well, you know? But when you look at the like their ability to throw things, humans are really, really good at it, and that's one of the like the very first things that gave us that kind of foothold over the rest of nature, you know. Mm. And so it's like it's really fundamental. It's like, and you look at kids, like um, you know, I go and visit my my brother's kids. They're like, what are they like three or four and six now or something? But like, you know, having like seen them grow up and stuff, they, they love to throw stuff, you know, it's just, it's built into their DNA. They're like, I see this thing in my hand, it's a good chance I'm going to throw it. And that's why was, when you see a kid picks something up, you're like, no, 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 <laughs> don't throw that. Don't throw that. Right. Yeah. So I wonder really if a lot of it has to do with like our ability to one, understand and relate to spatial concepts mm-hmm. like distance and proximity and things like that. Uh, and also our brain's ability to like work through consequences, right? Mm. Like if I throw this thing at such an angle, you know, my experience tells me that, you know, with such amount of force and such amount of angle, it's going to hit this target. Right. That's like the the logical programmer in you coming out. (laughs) If then, so throwing is good. If I throw this, then the, you know, lion will stop attacking me. And then I eat. Yeah. If I throw this rock at that rabbit, I might kill it. And then I eat rabbit. That kind of stuff. Yeah. I really like that. The, like, what, what appeals inherently to humans, you know? Like, what is it that, like, that's deep, deep built into us that we are like, ooh, I don't, I couldn't even describe why necessarily, but I like this, you know? And throwing is one of them. Just launching things, seeing things move through space, you know, it's, it's great. Or jumping or climbing. I mean, think of all the things that kids love to do. Climb trees, jump on rocks. And, yeah. Uh, a lot of games, you know, and they're so relatable too. Like when you think about game mechanics, uh, everybody can relate to gravity. Everybody can understand jumping. Everybody can understand throwing. Everybody can understand climbing ladders. Right. Uh, it doesn't really need a whole lot of explanation. Yeah, exactly. I love those things because um, sometimes, you know, I see this all the time. People are like, I don't know what game to build or I don't know which of these mechanics I've prototyped are the right ones or I, I just don't know which direction to go. And it can be overwhelming when you've got like, there's a million different things you could do. There might be a hundred different things you want to do and you you can maybe limit it down, you know, by being like, what is it that really does appeal to people? You know, I don't even have to explain stuff because they just get it. Even basic games like chess are kind of rooted in human movement. If you think about, you know, their pieces are really just abstractions for human soldiers or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way that they move on the battlefield and stuff like that. Yeah. And spacing stuff's really interesting, too. Um, there's this Seinfeld episode talking about a close talker. You know, like people are <laughs> yes. very aware of proximity. Like proximity matters a great deal. You know, like when, let's say you and I get together and we're just sitting there talking, there is like, 
there's a pretty narrow amount of proximity that's appropriate, right? Like if I'm too close, you're going to be like, Matt, <laughs> dude, <laughs> you're in my face. And if I'm too far away, you're like, what are you, what are you doing? I can barely hear you. Like get closer, you know? I'm kind of like one of these people that likes to be at the other side of the room from other people that I'm talking to. <laughs> You're a far talker? I'm a far talker. <laughs> I have a I have a big I have a big bubble, I think. Wow. <laughs> you need your personal space. I do. I do. Well don't live in heavily populated areas like Southern California. <laughs> uh San Diego is actually really spread out and I live in North County, which is kind of the fringes of San Diego. True. Which is one of the reasons why I never even considered living in San Francisco proper. Yeah. Just no way. No way. <laughs> we were considering it for a while, right around the time when the uh, rent started getting stupid. And we were like, we are trying to reduce our spending. <laughs> right. So we're out of here. That's right. Anywho, uh, stream yesterday. How'd that go? Yes. Uh, it went really well, actually, considering that I shoot from the hip, as we talked about before. <laughs> yes. Um, you never know what you're going to get. Uh, it kind of just depends, you know, what I feel like working on. Um, it also, you know, like I've said before, it uh, kind of... There's certain things that are better to work on on stream. Yeah. Something visual, something that I can make pretty immediate progress on. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of stuff I have to noodle about, like, say, dungeon generation. Dungeon generation is something that I really like to do. Um, and I might do it on stream more as I get more into the uh stages where i can like you know i have a little bit more infrastructure and so i can make some changes in code and then see them reflected in the game right but a lot of that stuff kind of ends up just being abstract thought and manipulating of data with relatively little visual uh progress yeah but anyways uh yesterday i uh i worked on new explosion graphics which is pretty fun um you had drawn some really cool explosion graphics i like those a lot oh thank you they look much better uh, than the explosions AWL one. So those I, I went and looked at those the the explosion cycle in AWL one, and it was like I, I had memories when I was looking at it. It was like the laziest thing I could possibly have done. You know, I mean, I just remember being you know, especially as a, a very novice artist, like just overwhelmed with here's a million things you need to draw, get to work, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> and especially the animated stuff was like you know because the, they all need to be taken to scale. It was like draw this thing, I'm like oh, all right, I'll draw it. And it's like, draw it 20 more times. And I'm like, no, it's overwhelming. So I, I did this cheap approach where I basically just started with like this kind of puffy circle and it kind of looked like an explosion puff kind of. And then um, I basically just kind of made it decay over time is really all I did to it, which was just kind of erasing and moving parts away from each other. And then it didn't look that great. So to compensate, we used lots of lighting effects and then it also rotates It'll like mm. spin in place to kind of take away from the fact that the <laughs> actual frames aren't that great. <laughs> so I didn't want to do that again, you know, like yeah. upwards and onwards, better, improve, all that jazz. Yeah, this one looks great. So I worked on that and um, that stuff's really great. One of the, my favorite things to do on stream is to uh, mess with the Unity animation stuff because I find that stuff really great. Yeah. Um, particularly when we're talking about the explosion, I love the fact that like, uh, the Unity animator has these great, this great flexibility where you can basically modify the properties of any object whatsoever. So when we're talking about animation in Unity, it's not only uh, changing a frame at a certain time. You know, like at the very base level of animation, you might think like, okay, you have a sprite and it has these amount of frames and it's like a walk cycle or something. And you go like frame one, two, three, four, done. Right. 
But Unity has all these great tools where you can uh, modify the colliders, um, which are the components of game objects that cause them to collide with other things. Um, you can change those on the fly based on the animation. So, for example, uh, in the explosion, you can scale the collider, uh, the circle collider that we're using for the explosion, to be bigger or smaller based on the frames of the animation. And it's really easy to get that to sync up exactly how you want. Right? Because you can go frame by frame and you can say, at this frame, the explosion looks like this because, you know, you have this frame-based animation. And you can say, at that exact frame, I want the collider to be this size and in this position. And you can also tween it between two values. You know, you can say, I want this thing to be uh, as big as it can be at the beginning and then I want to tween it down to the smallest size that I want it to be over the course of this animation. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, I, I did that with lights as well. The light starts out at full intensity at the beginning of the explosion and then it just tweens down to to zero and that takes zero code. It's all kind of part and parcel within this animator editor and so it kind of keeps everything nice and sync and consolidated and I really like it. Here we go again. Cart and parcel? Part and parcel. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? What is that? Uh, it's just a saying. We're like, you know, night, nicely wrapped up. Part and parcel. I got to ask Andrea about this. I I don't know that one. Nicely wrapped up. What was the one this this weekend you pinged me about? Oh, make hay while the sun shines. Yeah. What are you, what are you babbling about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, strike, you're, I, you're making stuff up. Strike while the iron's hot? That one I know. Okay, I'm not, so it, you know, completely ignorant of all <laughs> expressions or sayings or what have you. But make uh, hay while the sun shines is kind of similar to that. Uh, or get while the getting's good. Okay, I know that one. Yeah, I yeah. mean, having grown up in the Midwest, like I think that one was said daily. <laughs> yeah, get while well, the good, good. Get while well, the good, good, Matt. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Man, that, right. that accent comes way too easily to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like a, a switch, I can flip. Uh, good times. Anyways. Yeah. Um, so I worked on that, and then I actually worked for the first time with Unity's animation events. Oh, yeah. Which, this is actually pretty cool. Um, you can basically set a marker in your animation timeline and just have it call a function on mm. your script. And you can so you can say, like, at this particular frame, uh, call this event. And so, for example, in my explosion, uh, on the last frame, I had it call in a, a script event that just destroyed the object, removed it from the scene. Nice. Right, so when the explosion ends, and that way, like, I don't even have to worry about uh, timing it, you know, because before the way I was doing it was, you know, the uh, animation was, like, su- such, you know, a duration, let's say, like, two and a half seconds, and when the explosion started in the script, I would just set a function, like, set a timeout, like, in JavaScript, but in Unity Land, it's called invoke. Right. Um, I would invoke a function in, like, two and a half seconds, you know, and, and that works, but, you know, if I were to change the duration uh, of the explosion, then I'd have to go back and change that number as well. And so it's just not as nice. It feels flimsy, right? Yeah. Yeah, we did that kind of thing a lot in uh, Jin. I'm sure there's some code that exists to this day in a wizard's lizard that's like that, where there's basically like, you know, kind of two threads going on. One thing's like an animation's happening over here, and then there's unrelated code over here. I mean, they want to sync up at the end, but they right. uh, maybe don't. Actually, that's been the cause of a lot of bugs as well, like fatal errors even. Yeah, well, uh, callbacks and stuff, like just callback events. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty much how we do it in uh, JavaScript land. Yeah. Um, I try not to use invoke all that much, although I find myself using it quite frequently for, like, scripted events. Right. So I've been working on a lot of 
uh, stuff for the Kickstarter campaign, which involves a lot of video. Um, and part of the video that we're working on involves uh, like scripted things. You know, you're talking about that boss scene, aren't you? Well, I'm talking. Yeah, I'm talking about the boss scene or any of those Ooh, other scenes that we're boss on. scenes going to be so good. <laughs> but uh, I use invoke a lot there because you know you kind of want this like okay in you know two and a half seconds scroll the camera over here. And then once that's done, wait for two seconds and then do something else. You know? Right. Um, so that stuff uh, tends to be pretty useful. But um, one of the other things I talked a lot about on my stream was uh, the use of this new package uh, from the asset store called Light2D. Light2D. Uh, which is pretty cool. We talked about the lighting a little bit on a previous podcast. And we were kind of talking about how you know the basic just differences between unity's types of lights and the performance and that kind of stuff and i think i remember talking about how uh i was kind of thinking about implementing lights in the same way that it was lizard one had implemented them yeah i think that was last episode uh maybe (laughs) recently (laughs) for sure recently yeah yeah Uh, most always gets on my case because whenever i talk about things that happened previously i say you know the other day and it could have been three days or three months ago dude man being on like on an open (laughs) schedule you know and not like the rest of the world is like monday through friday and like there's daytimes and night times and stuff like (laughs) we are increasingly as as years go by we are worse and worse like time what is that how many months (laughs) Uh uh-oh what day where am i what's happening yeah yeah uh anyways and so um, I was talking about how I like that approach because it's simple and it's really easy to kind of get the results that you want. Um, and anyways, I found this package called Light2D uh, on the Asset Store, and it actually does uh, a very similar approach. Essentially, what it does is it uses 2D sprites and uh, basically radial gradients or really any kind of gradient that you can imagine, but the the default is a radial gradient. Um, and it uses this radial gradient to just overlay a colored sprite. Uh, and then it uses shaders to, you know, make that look like a light source instead of just being like an actual sprite. When you say sprite, you're talking about the polygon it generates, right? Well, I'm talking about a Unity sprite, yeah. But it creates one and then just kind of dumps it there and it only uses it for one frame or what? No, it just exists. And then it does it, it has to change the shape, right? Uh, well, it scales it. I mean, it can scale it any way that you want, and you can change the colors of the sprite. Interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, (laughs) it's a lot like AWL1. I mean, if you can imagine how that worked, the way that it worked is that we would draw a radial gradient to an off-screen buffer, if you can imagine that. I can. So you've got this radial gradient, and you know how that works. It's just like you gradient from one color in the center to the edges, and you get this nice circle type shape that has, you know, a varying degree of grayscale. And then you essentially replace the white with whatever color you want. So if you're making a yellow light, you would make it yellow. And so you'd get this pure yellow in the very center, and then it would uh, basically trail off the alpha channel towards the edges of the circle. And then every frame, you would just take that transparent yellow gradient, goes from yellow to transparent, and you just render it to a screen using some kind of, you know, I think we used the darken compositing or blending. 
Yeah. Um, but you could do any kind of thing there. And and the way that the Unity thing works is very similar. It just does that, but it uses shaders uh, to get like crazy lighting type effects. Shaders are so fancy. I know. I really want to learn more about shaders. Um, I'm still kind of in the realm where like I can use them if <laughs> other people have written them. <laughs> uh, yeah. But like when I open up a shader, I'm like, oh God, what is this? I'll see like people tweet once in a while and they're like, Hey, I, I wrote a whole game in a shader. And I'm like, what? Yeah, I don't know. You can do that? Like, <laughs> obviously, that's something I need to just put on the shelf and not learn for right now. I've got this article in my massive to-read bookmarks uh, that maybe I'll send you because it's like, you know, a, a beginner's refresher on shaders or something. And I'm like, that's what I need. Like, I need I need the baby version so I can <laughs> like get my feet wet, you know? You need shaders for dummies? That's what I need, yeah. Yeah. Uh, shaders for programmers who haven't written a line of code in six months <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm probably going to dive into shaders at some point in the nearest future maybe six to twelve months <laughs> we'll see wow let's see if Jeff is prescient you can see the future well I, I keep running into them more and more in Unity uh, and I use packages that leverage shaders like yeah not the standard shaders. It's like a tool in your belt that you don't know how to use, and you're like, mm, I need to <laughs> yeah, it makes me it makes me closer. a little uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Also, you know, one of the reasons that I'm interested in it is that um, my first inclination with this lighting stuff was to like try and write it myself. Of course, you know, because I was like, ah, I've done this before. You know, I've created radial gradients in Canvas and then applied them to other sprites using these kind of blending functions and stuff like i could do this it's not that hard it's the jeff way yeah do it yourself uh, (laughs) unity has a lot of other complication stuff going on like one you have to use multiple cameras uh to kind of achieve these effects i didn't really understand this with unity to begin with but you can basically render a camera you can have a camera in unity and you can render it to a texture Mm. and then you can texture something in the world with that texture wow so you could do like a mirror effect you could do a mirror effect or you could do like a computer screen or nice it's funny i was actually yeah, all kinds of weird stuff i was uh, i had a mirror to draw like on my list because i was like what's going to be in a house and i was picturing stuff like an attic or a storeroom or something and i was picturing like a mirror and then you know the big kind of like oval ones that are on a stand that you see in like you know i don't know ye old stories right like medieval yeah. times and whatnot and i was picturing there could be one that's just a mirror and then later i would put like a like a drape a drape like a i don't know a blanket over it or a sheet or something and i was like why don't i just not touch mirrors <laughs> because those are inherently more difficult than like here's here's a chest right here's a painting here's here's a, here's a hammer like so, something that's not gonna cause <laughs> all these problems like hey jeff can you make this mirror reflect the player's image and you're like sure i don't have anything better to do <laughs> that should be priority number one uh i'll get right on that yeah uh, anyway, so this light 2D thing, it works kind of the way that I wanted it to work. Um, obviously, it has its own like little quirks and stuff like that. Um, during the stream yesterday, people were asking about uh, how to render the shadows underneath uh, different objects and stuff like that. And I don't really know the answer. And I'm not even sure it's possible with that package because I think that the way that it works is that uh, it kind of renders stuff on top of the already rendered scene yeah so you have like your main camera and that main camera is rendering the stuff that it sees and then you have the secondary camera that's then rendering the lights on top of all that stuff and i think 
Yeah, it makes sense. But I think what you'd have to do is like, if you wanted to have like this nice layering where some shadows are underneath certain objects, you'd have to involve multiple additional cameras. But you could do that. You could. I think it would just complicate your scene immensely, right? Because you'd have to have, okay, here's a layer where like I'm drawing the background and then here's a layer where I'm drawing the shadows and here's a layer where I'm drawing the objects now. And then here's yet another layer where I'm drawing the shadows that should be on top of everything, right? Yeah. Because you do want some of your objects to be shrouded in shadows because that's just how things would look. Yeah. Uh, and so you need all these separate layers to kind of make that happen, I think. We had two layers, right? In the Wizard's Lizard. There's kind of like the underlying... I forget which one was which. I think the colors were underneath and the darkness was laid on top. Memory serves. Right. Well, I think that there's kind of a couple different things going on there. One is like draw layers, which Unity has and is really easy. Nice. Which just controls the order in which things draw. But then uh, this lighting stuff is like an actual separate camera render. Hmm. It's not like a different drawing layer within that camera. It's like a totally separate mechanism for drawing to the screen. Uh, I won't pretend to understand it completely, um, but it sounds more complicated than I'm comfortable with. Just put your tiger hat on and you can talk about it all day. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. The Uh, thing that really surprised me was that um, you said that this package and its lights are faster than the -the out-of-the-box Unity lights. Like, what? How is that even possible? Well, uh, because it's really not lighting... And I don't. It's not like per pixel lighting or anything like that. It's and it's just two D, right? It's just two D. It, it's basically just overlaying a gradient sprite, uh, and so it's kind of like just drawing a sprite. And the only difference really is that the sprite is drawn using a shader that uh, is a little bit different than like the standard sprite rendering shader, right? Um, and I guess like. The way I understand it is it's something akin to, instead of just doing a canvas copy, you're doing a canvas copy, but using like the additive or the darken or the multiply uh, compositing effect. Right. Right. And so what happens is that when you draw those pixels, instead of just putting them, you know, one for one where they're supposed to be, there's some kind of uh, like mathematical operation saying, okay, take the like value of this pixel and multiply it with the underlying pixel and blah 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 right and that's kind of what the shader is doing as well right it's taking this rendering process and it's instead of just doing what you would think of as just a you know okay take raga and put him here you know put one pixel for one pixel there uh it kind of just changes up how the pixels are rendered on the screen nice so you're very happy with it and you're gonna you're gonna ship it uh i think i am i mean uh there's definitely some little quirks with like the shadow rendering and stuff that I would like to, you know, maybe mess with. But I think by and large, it's pretty good because, uh, you know, like you just mentioned, the performance is just off the charts better. And one thing I mentioned in my stream is that uh, it may be possible to get better lighting uh, performance with Unity's lights as well. Maybe not better than this method, but better than it was um, by doing like baked light maps and stuff like that. But uh, again, that's a lot more, a lot more work than I'm comfortable with right now, and uh, a lot of that stuff kind of gets rooted in 3D anyway. And so, uh, this particular approach, I think, it gives me the results I want much more easily and much more performant <laughs> than I had before. And so, I'm I'm a big fan. 
Nice. Well, that's that's great to hear because, um, like we talked about before, the lights were one of the first things you did because it kind of comes out of the box. Um, but right. then it had you know all these problems, um, and it was taking a lot longer than expected. Um, I'm curious about Light 2D. Does it still work with the tiling? Because we had some problems with the lights before. It may have just been with the tiling, like sprite tile or whatnot. But it was basically we had this seaming issue where there's like some tearing. Like as you would walk, you would kind of see these really thin lines between the tiles, right? So that was a problem just with... It's not really a problem with sprite tile itself. It's just a problem with using sprites for tiles in general because apparently the way that Unity works is that even if you have a sprite, like uh, we had this these tile sprites that were like 64 by 64 and we had like transparent buffers around them. The problem is, is that sometimes, maybe due to floating point math, the way that Unity will apply that tile texture to the you know actual sprite, which is really just a 2D plane in Unity, uh, it will be like one or two pixels off. And so in that case, what happens is if you have your tiles too tightly together, it'll sample from one of the other tiles. But even if you have just transparent uh, spacing in between your tiles, you'll get some transparency, like one pixel of transparency on one side or the other. Uh, If you can imagine that it's like basically just offset by one pixel. And it sounds crazy, right? Because (laughs) in Canvas and other 2D libraries, like you're more than able to just say, I want to draw from pixel 00 to pixels 64, 64, and I just draw it to the screen, and there's no possible chance that it's going to, you know, uh, be one or two pixels off. So that was pretty pretty weird to me that that was the case, but for us, what solved it was basically just uh, taking each tile and putting a border, two-pixel border around them uh, that was the same pixels on uh, on their sides, if that makes sense. Yeah, so basically to fix that, we took the sprite sheet, the tile sheet, right? And we kind of nudged it away from the, uh, the outside of the image, the border, because we wanted to give it some padding. So we brought that in a little bit, and then I literally just took the image that was there, so like these series of spaced out tiles, and I went like, like just nudged them around almost in a, like a, a, not a circle, but like a square, where it would be like, you know, up two pixels of just the same, like whatever is it, I was on that top edge of the tile, that right. would get nudged up two pixels. And then like the upper left-hand corner gets nudged up two pixels. And the left side nudged over two pixels. So it's basically just this like, whatever colors on the outside gets kind of like bled out a little bit. Right, yeah. Um, it works so, really well. Yeah, it does. Um, and so that really wasn't a problem with the lighting specifically, but the lighting made that even more visible it emphasized the the fact that it was an issue right especially when um you had vertex lighting instead of per pixel lighting because the vertex lighting the way that it works is it would light the tiles from their corners like their vertexes because each tile is like a little square right right um and then you could definitely see the seaming in the tile in that in that sense as well so that's kind of a fixed issue for us and it's going to work with whatever light package we use Right, yeah. So Yay. basically, that's two separate things. One thing is that the Unity spriting system will sometimes be a pixel or two off uh, when it's mapping these textures to <laughs> to the tiles, which is super annoying, but uh, it seems to be a pretty common problem. I mean, as far as I could tell, there's a lot of people having this issue, and 
Um, there was a lot of talk about how to fix it, and this was the only method that actually did it. Um, I think that you know the only downside to this method is that you could potentially get into a situation where maybe your tiles look like they're kind of waving, like rippling, mm. right? Because they're they're sampling from different sections of the tile, but uh, it actually looks pretty good to me for now. So sure beats that tearing. That yeah, it, it, it beats the, the seaming for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um. But yeah, so the reason these these lights are a lot more performant is because they're just doing a lot less, right? They're just overlaying a radial gradient over the camera or over the screen and calling it a day. Nice. I like it's like it's very convenient that the package that works the best is also the one that looks the best. Yeah, um, I think that it, one of the really great things about this package too is that you can have any kind of gradient mask for your lights. And so by default, it comes with like this radial gradient, which is what you would expect a light to look like. But you could actually make your own gradients uh, of any kind. And so basically it just comes down to being a black and white image or grayscale image where you have white being full intensity and black being zero intensity. And so you could create, like, if you wanted to create a light that would mimic, like, a computer screen, you could create, like, a pretty solid white box in the middle and just feather it out just a little bit, just blur it out on the sides, a little bit of gradient, uh, and then the rest of it would be black. And so you would get this kind of lighting effect where you have, like, a very intense square that has, like, a little bit of gradient around the edges. And then you could apply that to, you know, uh, a sprite in game that was supposed to look like a computer screen or whatever and get a very nice effect um, that I just, I was not able to do that with unity lights um, nice. because they just have like, it's either a spotlight or a point light and it just, you know, uh, I think the, for our, for 2d, this just works way better. Right. For pure 2d, right. If we were doing something different where like the geometry was 3d and we actually had lights um, that were that were lighting, you know, 3D objects that were textured. Uh, in that way, it, it would probably be a different story. But um, in this case, where we're trying to replicate like a true two-dimensional game, uh, this lighting method seems to work better. Nice. Yep. So I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I, that felt like one of those things that was kind of looming over the over our heads because uh, the lights affects everything, right? It, yeah, it really does. And um, and the nice thing about this, too, is that uh, it does kind of give you these, like, faux 2D shadows, which are kind of nice, um, which is something that we wouldn't really have been able to do with the built-in Unity lights very easily. Yeah. So. That's cool. Yeah. It's good stuff. I'm thrilled. <laughs> are happy. you ready for my art tip? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I, could, I could take it or I could leave it. No, I, I'm on the edge of my seat. Wow. Well, calm it down. All right, then. <laughs> Lean back and relax. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, let's see. We started off with draw every day. That's step zero. Draw one is learn how to learn. Uh, step two is um, think in 3D. You should read Paul Richards' Wield and Weld. Uh, and then, I'm getting these numbers mixed up, maybe. Uh, number three, surround yourself. This is the one I think last week I, uh, you know, sometimes we'll talk about a topic and then we just who knows we got it on tangent or we just like switch topics accidentally a couple of things i don't think i covered uh completely in that one but it's basically like um find artists you like and follow them um uh, read their books like i've always got a book these days just something that i'm reading uh you know always put pressure on, on your learning and that stuff um 
what's my other things oh interact with the artist you know like what i'll do sometimes is like i'll uh i'll see an artist that i follow and i enjoy will start streaming you know and uh, i'll see him doing stuff and i'm like I, I get it like i understand and then they'll do something and i'm like what was that you know and i'll ask him about it you know like just learn like fill fill the gaps that you notice in your own knowledge and um, i think surrounding yourself is is a big part of it because like i don't know about you but I, i'm the kind of person i'm very easily influenced i could like see a documentary about i don't know like saving dolphins or something and i'm like man i gotta save some dolphins <laughs> you know what i mean so like when yeah. you when you surround yourself with other artists and other just artworks and you've got books everywhere and like one thing i do is i just hide sketchbooks around there's like one in my bag one in my backpack and stuff and i'm like i'm more like like i feel like i'm surrounded by art so i'm more likely to do art you know so that's a big one that's uh that was number three and then uh, number four is a really important one i think this is when uh, the learning starts to kick up into the the next gear and this is to set specific goals very important so mm. like you know when let's say you're, you're starting to take your art more seriously uh your goal is this like intangible i want to become a better artist uh, it's like okay great go do that you know like what how do you how how make better art right and the way to do it is to have these really small, concise goals. And uh, part of this is going to be from the like the learning to learn thing. You know, if, if control paint is your thing, go check that out. If not, go watch. There's a, so many videos on YouTube. You can find, you know, the artist that uh, that does education stuff that that floats your boat. You know, and, uh, and they will probably give you homework assignments once in a while, and that's cool. But you need to have your own as well. And here's one thing that I really like <clears throat> is I'll make a ticket for myself uh, to do fifty studies of say like one point perspective and if you don't know what that is you look it up and it scales marvelously too because you can be like okay so i did 50 one point perspective studies okay i'm done okay do 50 more okay i'm done do 50 more right it scales great and then also it's like okay so you've done that you've done a couple of hundred one point perspective studies now do two point perspective you're like oh okay great and then i'll do this to myself too i'll be like <clears throat> i'm gonna do 50 two-point perspective studies on traditional media right i'm gonna just draw it on paper then i'll be like i gotta temper that okay now do 50 two-point perspective studies on digital like do it in manga studio or photoshop or something on ipad who cares just do it and then uh move up to three-point perspective and do 500 of those you know like it scales infinitely basically and that's what's so good about that and what i love about it is it's this nice concrete goal you know like I did 51 point perspective studies. Like I did that. I I don't know exactly what I gained, but I know that I'm better, right? It's like you were grinding in an RPG. Like I went and I killed 50 giants and I didn't gain a level, but I'm closer. Right. You know? Uh, I have a question. Question. What What is a one point versus a two point perspective? <laughs> so they refers to vanishing points. And it actually scales up like you you could have a, a piece with like a million different <laughs> vanishing points if you had all kinds of different planes and stuff, really. But like a one point perspective is say you're like, you're looking down a tunnel, right? Okay. There will be like a single vanishing point or like you're looking at like a, like a railroad <laughs> on the ground, you know, just like everything vanishing into one point, them being kind of aligned. Right. And then two point perspective will be more like, um, say that you're looking at a cube from the side. Right. And there's two vanishing points where the, the planes, on the left goes, you know, vanishes onto the left and playing the right vanishes way off into the right. Mm-hmm. And then three-point perspective would be you have all three planes of that cube that you can see, or then they all have their own vanishing points. But, I mean, the internet is better at explaining this than I am and knows more about it and has a million different articles. And that, oh, man, just the internet. The internet is so good for learning this stuff. So, in 3D space, like, you know, uh, traditionally, what you would think of as 3D-dimensional artistry is three-point perspective the max? 
Well, it it, it might be for a cube, right? Because uh-huh. there's going to be three planes you can see, three visible planes, right? But like when you're looking out into the world, there's basically an infinite number of vanishing points. Anywhere where there's a plane that is not, you know, perpendicular to your face, mm. <laughs> anywhere oh, I where see. it's slanted. So like, you know, when you're looking at your computer screen right now, unless you're looking at it straight dead on, it's going to have these vanishing points. You can follow the line from like the top of your monitor and it goes off to the left and you follow the line from the bottom of your monitor and they go, woo, they just, they go off really far, but eventually they do vanish. So like if you were looking at a city scene, you'd have like the buildings might have their own vanishing points, the street signs, the cars, the road, the people. Yeah. That's why I think that a lot of these, um, these point perspective, um, studies that you see they do often uh like their subject is human-made stuff like man-made things like a a street is actually great and like buildings like you're talking about like a a city scene is fantastic because it just so happens that everything's aligned on like one vanishing point but when you go do a nature study like like you look at the forest right like your vanishing points become less useful like they're still there they still they still exist but like let's say you're looking at a tree there might be a million different planes you know, I could just imagine it's made up of polygons, right? And mm-hmm. every single little piece of bark on the back and the trees and the trunks and everything is going to have their own individual points to which they align and then at some point vanish. And it, it's basically just not as useful when you have more organic stuff. And when you've got man-made, like, you know, rigid cubes and hard shapes like that, it's just a more useful tool. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and again, like, I don't, I'm not an expert on this, but... Uh, there's there's so much information. I'll, I might put a link to uh, that's the thing too though. I don't have like a like one resource I would point to. I've just like you know read a couple of articles on it and then did a buttload of studies basically. Um, so scaling that too, like I think this is important too. Is like once you get a rhythm down, like I can sit down right now and do a endpoint perspective and just bang it out. And you just usually what I do is I just draw a bunch of cubes. And uh, what's what's nice about it is like when you've got this rhythm down, you can start to like return to something you did before you know like i did this point perspective and i kind of stumbled through it and it didn't look that great do it again and you'll do it better you know uh, i mentioned the toggling between um different things uh this is something else that i've noticed is like i'll get really bored with let's say i'm doing like 52 point perspective studies right and i'll start to like make things too complicated i'll start to like try to render a whole house before i've even got my stuff laid down and what i think i like to focus on is primitives so like just, and that's the thing is you can start with primitives. You can be like, I did this, you know, let's say a three point perspective study and I drew a cube here, maybe a bunch of cubes, who knows, right? But like, I might find that uninteresting, right? But the cool thing is you can come back later and you can add all this cool stuff to your cubes, right? Like, let's say you you put a cube and you draw it there and then you might be like, oh, that's a really boring cube, right? Make it a head, turn it into a robot, you know, like, but let's start simple, start with something very basic, like some primitives. Anyway, like game design, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, kind of. We were actually talking uh-huh. about the um, the golden ratio, which is a thing that gets applied to art a lot. It like you know, it talks about the the ratio of one thing to another and how there can be like a compositional flow through a piece and whatnot. And like you right. can apply those things to uh, to game design, and that's one of the reasons I'm talking about art. You know, like we're not going to turn this into an art podcast. A lot of this is because there are like lessons you learn that you can apply to game development, game design, like all these other things. And they're good principles, you know? Yeah. That uh, golden ratio, I think applies to a lot of stuff. I think it's similar to the rule of thirds uh, in photography. Yeah. Right. Where you want to have like your subject. It's more interesting. Like you don't want to take a picture of something 
and just put your person in the center. Right. Like it's more interesting if you photograph your subject in either like the first or the second third or third yeah, third. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, of the picture. There's also uh, I think it's uh it's Harold Speed's book The Practice and Science of Drawing uh where he talks about the uh, the five eighths rule, which is very similar, but it's like you can see how um like these uh these masters that used to you know paint and whatnot they they would have like let's say you pick an arbitrary measurement right like so there's a there's a figure standing in this painting, and this figure is say you know one unit tall right, and if you break it into eighths, you then take five of those eighths and you can see how that pattern is repeated throughout the painting because it is a pleasing proportion does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that kind of stuff, and uh, and you can totally apply that to like the art. You can apply it to the game design. You can apply it to your life. You know, interesting, useful stuff. I wonder, isn't the golden ratio something that shows up in nature as well? Yes, because it's it's fractal, right? right. It, like it starts off large and gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And smaller. I'll put a link to uh, some kind of golden ratio article. I don't know. There's a million. There's like a, there's a Wikipedia entry even. So like whatever. Like just. Sure, you look it up, look it up, and uh, find lots of good stuff about it. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's number four: set specific goals and uh, just keep plugging away at it. So, like, that's what I'll do. Is like, I've almost always got a ticket assigned to me to do n number of n point perspective studies, and it's like the one thing I know that I can be like, oh, I've got fifteen minutes to kill because my food's cooking or something. I'll just sit down and bang out a couple. There you go. And that's like just having just doing that. You know that you're getting better a little bit. You're grinding, and it's good. Um, and the next week uh, is the one I'm really excited about because it's one that uh, I've been hitting really hard, and I'm uh, I'm interested to talk about it. Ooh, ooh, yeah. But in the meantime, yeah, foreshadowing, continuity, and whatnot. Um, next week's will be really cool. What is yours, sir? My unity tip. Yes, uh, I guess this would be unity tip number one. Number zero is uh, last episode. This yeah. is number one. Numero uh, uno. I might actually have two things because um, I find the unity tips. Interesting because you can go very uh, specific, right? Where you could, like last week I said, do this very specific thing. It's like just a simple thing you can do to kind of make your life easier. And it was that you can set the defaults for your script components through the inspector so that when you attach components to game objects, they have these nice defaults for whatever their uh, public properties happen to be. Right. So I have one of those this week too, but I also wanted to uh, talk about just going with the flow. Hmm. And I think it's not necessarily a Unity specific tip, but it's something that kind of helped me in the transition to Unity, um, which is, you know, people have asked me before, like, oh, why didn't you use JavaScript uh, when you started using Unity? Because you came from JavaScript and you know JavaScript. Um, And it's because I researched and I identified that C Sharp was the way to go. Yeah. And this really isn't a specific, like, you should use C Sharp point but the point is is that unity like a lot of other game engines is opinionated and yeah. it has some ways of doing things that are uh more or less difficult and so one thing that's helped me is by taking the path of least resistance in a lot of ways and just doing things the way that unity would want you to do them and it's tough because when you come from another system like say html5 or game maker or whatever you know, you're coming into a new environment where Unity kind of wants you to do things in a different way, right? And, you know, there, I think a really good example for me would be the entity component system that Unity has. And it's also got this very classical base inheritance approach. 
And those are two things that I was trying to get away from uh, in HTML5. Not necessarily the entity component system, but um, I the way that I envisioned entity components was more like the game logic lived in these systems, and the systems operated on uh, like a batch of just bags of data. We talked right. about that before. Um, Unity kind of has more of this approach where the components themselves contain their specific game logic. So this component takes care of its own things, and this component can also cross-reference other components, right? So in component A, you can say, give me a handle to component B, and then I can call methods on component B. And I just kind of like went with it, right? When I started using Unity, I was like, ah, this isn't the way I would prefer to do it. It wasn't wouldn't be the way I would have done it in HTML5, but it is the way that is the easiest and the path of least resistance in Unity. And so uh, I was able to make progress pretty quickly uh, in Unity by just kind of accepting what it wanted to do and going with the flow. So your default should be do it the Unity way, or at least try it the Unity way. And if the Unity way, you know, doesn't fit, then explore something else. But you have that default of starting with like, just go with the flow, see how Unity wants you to do it and try that way first. Right. And the lights are actually kind of a decent example of that. Like the first thing I did was use Unity lights and I was able to get a decent effect with Unity lights. Um, But it was only after using them for a while and investigating options that I decided to not do it that way and to kind of go with this like third party approach. That is a tip I think you can apply to your whole life as well. Yes. Right? Like, you don't want to come into a place and be like, let's change everything. Let's do it my way. And they're like, what are you talking about? You just got here. Like, first you come in, you ease yourself into the situation, right? And you're like, hey, how are things doing? Like, what's the convention here? And then later you're like, hey, I have an idea for how we can improve things, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. It's like no one likes that coworker that comes in that's new and just decides (laughs) that they're going to change everything up. And it's like, well, slow your roll. I know we're all using PHP here and we have, you know, 100,000 lines of code written in PHP, but we're switching to Ruby now because I've said so. Right. Like, what? Go with the flow. I like it. That's good. Yeah. Uh, Again, like, you know, a lot of your art tips can also be applied to, like, game design or life in general. And go with the flow, I think, is another one that's kind of uh, a little bit universal. Yeah. Um, Another very specific Unity tip I have, though, is that uh, you need to make sure to set your prefabs and uh, basically set the the format of Unity's data to textual instead of binary uh, if you're working with source control. Oh. Because then you can actually get meaningful diffs because, you know, most diffing programs aren't going to give you meaningful diffs with binary files. So their default for even the code is binary? Not the code, but the default for, like, the prefabs. Okay. So, like, if you... Think about how we stored prefab data in Gen. It was like just JSON files. Yeah. Um, Unity has YAML files for storing that data for binary, and it defaults to binary as far as I can remember. I see. That's weird. Yeah. So anyways, if you're working with source control, uh, make sure to set that setting to text instead of binary because it's going to make your life a lot easier um, when you're diffing stuff. And if you're not working with source control, God help you. (laughs) That's right. <laughs> May God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Get in it in any folder. Right. Any and all folders. <laughs> I think uh, someone was asking um, if we stored our images in in Git, and if you know the binary revisions to those images caused a lot of bloat. Uh, the answer is that we do, and I don't think it's ever been a problem. 
No. Um, I think one thing is that the images don't change all that often, you know? Like, the code changes frequently. You know, you would be touching um, a line of code across many different files on a routine basis, whereas, you know, some art assets may never have any revisions to them, and some, you know, may have one or two big revisions to them, but, you know, it's rare that you're going to go in and just change, like, one or two pixels on an image. Yeah, it's also, you don't really need to have access to, like, what am I looking for here? The image itself is is just a result of the, like, image file. So, like, I work in Manga Studio, and I will output a ping, right? And, like, the ping doesn't have a lot of value. I can export another one really easily. So, like, we don't have to have a lot of, uh, like, diffs between those images. And, like, let's say one of them gets corrupted or just, oh, I deleted this ping or something. Like, it's not a big deal. Right, but so we don't store like PSDs and stuff in in Git. Yeah. Although, like, so if that was their question, like, no, we don't, because those are gigantic files. I feel like there's got to be a better way to store your like, you know, your raw um, image program files. I know that there are some like source control pieces of software that are specifically made for images and stuff, but uh, I don't know enough about them. Yeah, I should really research that stuff. I got to back up my stuff, put it in Google Drive or something. <laughs> <laughs> how how effed would we be if uh, if you lost the PSD for Wizards Lizard 2? Your PSDs. Um, well, these days I'm working in LIP, L-I-P. What? Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Part of the, like all this work we did with the art style and, and stuff like that is, um, like, aside from the animations, the animations are a beast i should have talked more about the explosion cycles maybe next week um but basically like the images themselves are pretty easy to, to reproduce you know what i mean mm. like the individual assets like let's say you know I, I lost a folder and we need to redraw a table or something like i can bang that out in like half an hour it's not too bad but like the animation stuff i've really gotta <laughs> like pretty much the raga files are going to be really important because you know those are the basis for a lot of animation frames and those have had you know, whereas like a, a chest graphic might have had like an hour or two of work on it, which is, you know, non-trivial, but it's not like the worst thing ever. Raga will have like weeks and weeks of work on them. So like, I think what I might do is uh, is just back up select files, perhaps. Mm. But like, I don't know. I'm not convinced that everything is really going to be that important. But I, I don't know. I, I might I might change my story a lot if my you know hard drive crashes or something. <laughs> yeah, and I'd yes. be like, "Past Matt, what are you thinking? You're wrong with you? What have you done? Yeah, yes. Um, I I think that it came from like uh, I had a friend uh, graciously give me a Drobo, and I'm like, cool. And I bought a bunch of hard drives and I filled it up, and then it just uh, stopped working. Mm. And I don't know what happened, and it was really frustrating. And I spent, I wasted a lot of time on it. And then uh, I basically just, I took uh, the hard drives and I, uh, you know, I um, Frankenstein them, used them in various places, emulation, and you know, giving people files and whatnot. So it's like my last experience with trying to take backup seriously didn't go very well, and now I've gotten really lazy. I think that you should at least put them in Google Drive because if they're in Google Drive, then they exist on your computer, they exist on my computer, and they exist on Google's cloud servers. Let's and, uh, you know, it's really easy. You know, you don't have to do anything other than just drag and drop them. Jeff, I've only got 17 gigs on Google Drive. <laughs> it's not going to be enough. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I should just start doing that. Yeah. Good. Good talk. Yeah, good talk. Um, Something that I wanted to talk about this week, but since we're sort of-ish out of time, I'll probably talk about it next week, but 
I'm really interested in it because there's this great article about, uh, I think it's called Exploring Depth or Evaluating uh, Game Mechanics for Depth. Yeah. And um, I really want to talk about that because this is an article that kind of really opened my eyes with new terminology and new ways of thinking about certain aspects of game design. And uh, I remember when we had talked about entity component systems uh, for game architecture, that kind of was like this revealing moment for me where I was like, whoa, like this is a completely different way of thinking about this stuff. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if it's that impactful, but it's certainly in the same vein of like, it changed the way that I view understanding depth and game mechanics a little bit. Yeah, so. sometimes even just having terms or just the language to talk about stuff, as, as, you know, we talked about this in the podcast before, but just having those words changes your world, you know, seriously. Like, a, whereas previously we might be stumbling through a conversation and, like, we can barely even describe what we're trying to talk about, this one gives you terms that you can apply to your game to, like, objectively make it better and just know more about what you're doing which is which is really great when you're working with something as intangible and nebulous as game design right yeah make a fun experience for human beings like that's hard so anything you can use to help you get there is is good and this was a really good article to me it was one of these ones that's um impactful enough and hard to understand enough like i read it once i don't feel like i fully understand it so it's like the way i do it is i'll read it once and then i'll come back to it like a week later read it again and yes. then if I still don't feel like I have like a full understanding, then I will try to like apply it to Wizard Lizard 2, you know? So that's kind of what I did. I, I read it once and then I read it again. And then I just started writing down all the ways in which that terminology and thinking applied to a Wizard's Lizard 2. Nice. Um, and that really kind of opened my eyes. And so I think it's, it's good that we mention it now because uh, we should put it in the show notes and then listeners can, if you're interested, obviously, read it. And think about it or whatever. And then next week, uh, Matt and I will talk about it. And so it'll hopefully kind of give you more context as to what yeah, what the hell it is we're talking about. <laughs> so yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, check it out. Give it a read. And uh, don't feel bad if you don't understand it fully. And if you do, you can be like, you can be smug and be like, I'm smarter than Matt and Jeff. <laughs> Only had to <laughs> read it once. <laughs> that's a low bar. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's all we have for this week so thanks for listening Uh, come hang out with us on the forum at forum.lostdecadegames.com and check out my game development live stream Mondays at 6pm Pacific we're going to play you out with This Again by Joshua Morse ship it
Welcome to Lost Cast.